Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. We're still trying to figure out where this 13 cents goes and, and why is it there. So uh, I'm going to reinforce this with the Prime Minister when I meet with him. Uh, the federal government has an ability to look at competition within markets. Uh, clearly, there's something wrong with the gas market in British Columbia. This is Vancouver Province columnist Mike Smith. And I'm Vancouver Sun columnist Rob Shaw. It's time to go in the house and go inside BC politics. All right, welcome to another podcast. That's Premier John Horgan talking about gas prices in BC. And Rob, this follows another report that flowing out of the public inquiry that Horgan called into gas prices. And what's the latest on this? Horgan has said we're getting gouged, right? We're getting gouged by big oil. Well, you won't find that kind of uh, colorful language in the actual report, which is more a collection of dense statistics and pie charts and graphs and data dumps. We now have two giant reports into gas pricing in, in BC, and I could not tell you anything about how <laughs> gas prices are actually, uh, whether they're actually kind of gouging customers or not. Essentially, this is the second report by the BC Utilities Commission, and it basically says, look, like, uh, as it calls it in the report, the tail is wagging the dog on gas prices in BC. All of our gas prices begin to be set at the price of the most expensive gasoline that comes from Seattle into British Columbia. This 5% of BC's gas comes from Seattle. It's got the biggest price tag on it. And for whatever reason, all the gas companies in BC are using that as the starting point for their gas pricing. doesn't matter if it comes from Alberta in the pipeline and it's cheaper. So that's one weird profit margin that got identified in the report. And then there's the outstanding matter of 13 cents a liter of unexplained extra costs. The report uh, the Utilities Commission basically stands its ground on that figure, even though the uh, oil companies deployed their economists and lobbyists and slick GR people to come out and sort of try to take a run at the commission for, oh, you know, you don't understand how the real world works. You don't understand. Oil and gas pricing is hard. It's very complicated. It's about economics. And the commission basically said, well, you know what? Still doesn't make any sense, doesn't it? And so we're left with, I think, maybe practical reality of not understanding it but as you and i have talked about before a political win in some ways for the horgan government because it leaves him with just enough room to say basically whatever he wants yeah because horgan likes to keep using the gouge word like don't point the finger at me for high gas taxes which are the highest in north america point the finger at the oil and gas companies because they're the ones who are ripping you off and gouging you at the pump and like you said this public report that flowed out of this inquiry did not use that harsh language. They didn't say in this report that British Columbians are being gouged, but they did say there was this unexplained 13 cent a liter price difference that they can't explain. And I guess that's in some ways, maybe that's good enough for Horgan as he tries to kind of politically inoculate himself against any criticism, because this is a political exercise at the end of the day. It really all started back in the spring when you had gas prices spike at like we we're paying, what is it, buck seventy a liter or more, and people were furious about it. The liberals, I think, were scoring some real good shots on the government saying it's it's Horgan's fault with these high gas taxes. So this whole public inquiry in these reports kind of flowed out of that as Horgan trying to protect himself to say, no, 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 it's not me. It's the gas companies that are to blame. So I guess he's, you know, he's done the best he can to kind of uh, cover his 
covers up sort of political backside on it. But I still think it's a dangerous issue for the government if prices go back up. We've seen some moderating of gas prices recently, but it always seems to go back up. So if we get another big price spike next year and then the government, as scheduled, once again increases the carbon tax, then I think it it creates another opportunity for the liberals to kind of pile on and say this is the government's fault. It'll continue to be an issue just because it's that populist politics. You know, yeah. it hits your wallet. People are angry. They want government to do something about it. Whether government can is not the question. It's, it's just that outrage that provokes some type of response from politicians. So speaking of outrage, uh, Smitty, the issue of teen vaping, which you have covered yeah. very well uh, in the province newspaper, came to the legislature uh, in the form of new legislation and regulations that Health Minister Adrian Dix has announced. And it's kind of an interesting one, two, three kind of punch combination here between uh, taxes and kind of nicotine limits and advertising limits and uh, but not not what you and some other folks have been suggesting, which is an outright ban on flavored uh, vape juice. So that cotton candy or that sweet. I don't, I don't know what these flavors are, but apparently they're they're very attractive to to the younger uh, vapors. Uh, those will not be banned per se. But walk us through what government's talking about. Okay, here. I think it's actually a very tough crackdown and maybe tougher than what was anticipated. And like you said, it's a multi-pronged thing. So the government restricting uh, vape flavors. So they will bring in an outright ban on flavors that appeal to children. And when you try to pin Adrian Dix, the health minister, down on that, precisely what flavors is he talking about? He said, well, that'll be worked out in regulations. But it's things like, you know, cotton candy or candy cane or tutti frutti or basically candy flavor. That will not be allowed. Now, presumably, you still would be allowed to have a, uh, sell some other flavors, like maybe like a, a fruit flavor, perhaps, or, or something like that. Or something like that. Mint. Yeah, that maybe some adults like. Like, I've been contacted by adults who say, look, these vape products help me quit smoking. So please don't ban all these flavors because adults like the flavors too. So I think Dick's listened to that. And so what they've done is they've banned the the, chi- the ones that are clearly marketing to children, but allowing some other vape flavors to still be sold, but only in age-restricted stores, right? And I think he said there were about 150 mm-hmm. of these like vape, standalone vape shops that have got the blacked out windows and stuff and they check your ID. So he said, you'll still be allowed to sell some flavors in those stores, but all the other retail outlets, of which there are thousands, like corner stores, gas stations, they will not be allowed to sell any flavored vape products, period, other than tobacco flavor. That's the only flavor you'll be able to buy. At a, <laughs> mm, at a, tobacco flavor. Yeah, tobacco flavor. If you stop at a gas station, that's the only flavor you'll be able to buy. So that was a bit um, interesting move. Uh, also, cutting down a nicotine content which was another one that Dix had earlier kind of indicated he wanted to do, um, and a big tax hike on vape products. So going from the present 7% provincial sales tax to 20%, so like tripling the tax on vape mm. on vape products. So this is a an, uh, on a big uh, advertising effort aimed and social media campaign aimed at kids to get them to stop, to not start start vaping in the first place. So I thought it was a pretty comprehensive and, and tough package, really. Yeah, you know, BC had legislation on vaping in 2015, but it, uh, which made it, you know, illegal to be selling to someone who was under 19 years of age, but they didn't really do much more than that. So you had all these, as you mentioned, corner stores, 
stores, gas stations, 90,000 points of sale across yeah. the province. You could wander in and buy tutti frutti vape juice in a in an e-cigarette pan right. and walk out. And so this is kind of it was interesting to hear Adrian Dick say, look, at one point all governments pretty much across the world thought vaping was the cure for smoking. Yeah. That you would start this harmless vape uh product you would be able to get your nicotine delivered to you, but none of the cancer-related effects of smoking a cigarette. And that at one point, governments were kind of encouraging this. And over time, we've learned that they are just as addictive. The evidence is suggesting they do have health consequences. And now, as Adrian Dick said in this press conference, government's got it wrong. And we got to go back and we got to encourage people to not vape unless you absolutely need to. And especially kids, do not be doing this just because it tastes good. It is not harmless. So it kind of... You know, governments are scrambling all over the place, but it sounds like BC's package is, comparatively speaking, pretty tough. It's certainly one of the toughest in Canada. That's how they described it at the news conference, that this is the toughest set of regs on youth vaping in the country. And it certainly, to my knowledge, it, it is as well. Um, maybe some people would have liked to have seen it go further. Uh, Todd Stone, the liberal critic, had brought in a bill saying you should only be allowed to sell vape products at uh, pharmacies and uh, an outright ban on flavors didn't go as far as that. But I think that certainly comparatively in other, in other provinces is a pretty tough. And I, and I think it strikes a balance between because there is a significant smoking cessation aspect to this. Like if you are a hardcore lifelong smoker and you're trying to quit smoking, a lot of people have been able to transition to these vape products mm-hmm. and they say this has improved my health. So I think the government's trying to balance that and saying, okay, you can still buy some flavored products that might appeal to adults trying to quit smoking, but you can only buy them in a very tightly regulated, age-restricted environment. So it's an interesting um, balancing act that they brought in, and I thought it was a pretty pretty good package, really. No more tutti-frutti juice for you if you're hooked on the tutti-frutti. Time to get off the tutti frutti train. Well, you know uh, what? I think a lot of parents are concerned about this. I know I am. I, the reason I got into it and started writing about it in the in the paper was because I got two boys in high school, and whenever I go by their high school, I see these crowds of kids standing around vaping. I was like, "Good God, what are you guys doing?" Like this, you feel like going up and t- telling these kids, "Don't, don't get addicted to nicotine. This is crazy." And then I was talking to my son about it, and I, I asked him, uh, "Do kids vape in the bathrooms at school?" And he said, "Dad, they vape in class." Forget about just the bathrooms. They vape right in class. Are you, what? Are you kidding me? He goes, yeah, they call it stealth vaping. <laughs> and then I went online and I go, yeah, they get these little teeny tiny vapes that you can hide in like a, like a fifth pocket, your jeans and take little puffs in class. Wow. Or, or blow or, or specially designed hoodies where you can blow the vapor into like a secret tube on your hoodie. So you can vape in class. Like seriously, this kind of stuff's going on and it's not good. The online component of, of, being able to buy the e-juice yeah. is something that's going to be regulated by the federal government. And you heard Adrian Dix in his press conference say, look, we got it. We, we need Ottawa to come to the table. They got to do something. They've had regulations out for consultation for months. The federal election stalled all of Ottawa's efforts. So as much as BC cracks down on the bricks and mortar shop, for a lot of kids, finding a way to get it online uh, is a is a much easier way for them well, anyway. So that that'll be the next step is somebody federally and in the U.S. They're going to have to go after the online portals. Yeah, you're right. I mean, this is this is a tough one to crack, uh, and and because governments were slow to react to it, I think, and in some ways, like you said, got it wrong first time around. That it's going to be a tough to kind of put the genie back in the bottle a little bit, especially when kids are so savvy at ordering stuff online. Yeah. That's tough to police. So, but I thought you know a, a pretty. I thought I was kind of impressed with the package the government brought out. 
Uh, moving on to another topic, we're actually going to be joined by a special guest, uh, Times columnist, columnist Les Lane, who's been writing uh, several really good columns on this bizarre issue of BC's children's watchdog trying to get some files from the provincial government and getting told no. And this ending up in a very long court fight now that has been going on behind the scenes. We didn't know anything about it until Les wrote his columns uh, and uh, and kind of shed some light on it for us. So we want to thank Les for coming in to the show and talking to us. And, and Les, maybe you can just start by walking us through, like, what, what exactly is the source of this battle and what's going on here? Well, thanks for the compliment, but I I actually don't think I got to the bottom of this. I'm, I'm absolutely baffled at how this came to pass. Hmm. The uh, ten, you have to flash back to 2010. The representative for children and youth uh, wanted some information from government on a children's program. The government refused her, and she uh, went to the wall on this. She sued the government in court, demanding the right to see this data. And it turned out it was a big issue. I think there was reporters actually covered the hearing in court, which is a bit unusual in Supreme Court. She won the case overwhelmingly. And the NDP critics of the day were cheerleading every step of the way for the rep's independence, her vital need to know, her right to know. The legislation that sets up her office gives her all the authority in the world, and they demanded in question period. There's five of them in a row. Three of them are now cabinet ministers. Just pilloring the government for tr having the audacity to think about blocking the rep from getting access to information. And then this week, last week, a look at a Supreme Court list routinely. The representative for children and youth is suing the attorney general of BC. The verdict comes out and it's a play by play. Exactly the same thing is happening. And it's the NDP blocking, trying to block the rep's access to some information and program that the rep wants to do to, to do her job. It almost seemed even worse, though, because in reading your column, they made the NDP lawyers, the government lawyers, tried to make some argument that the children's rep shouldn't even have access to this type of information because of her mandate. Like they took a they took a really hard swipe at her ability to get what she wants, not yeah. just in this case, but in yeah. a larger sense, too. Yes, I, I think they, at that point, they're throwing everything but the kitchen sink into the argument. But the, it, I'm not a lawyer. None of us are. But like read the plain English of her act. The representative can do virtually anything she wants. That law was written at a time of crisis we needed complete independence they gave her it says right in the act she can she can chase anything she wants and there's very little defense to that for a government but they uh, actually whereas nine years ago the government was blocking on a fairly narrow issue about cabinet privilege the rep then wanted mm -hmm. cabinet documents and that that can be a dicey issue you could argue that and this one, it's not over that particular point. They're just dismissing her mandate completely, saying the report that she's planning to do, which is, I think sounds like a fairly important issue, she can't do that, which is um, verging on you know, a complete misread of the law. And that if you match the NDP critics of the day up with what they're doing now, that it's the hypocrisy is just like in your face. And because we're on a break week, we haven't heard any reaction from NDP ministers, former critics turned ministers as to what the government's trying to accomplish here. We don't know why. I mean, sometimes government uses this argument 
like, oh, well, our lawyers are just doing their thing and, you know, the politicians aren't directing them. But it seems hard to imagine this going on for you as know, long as it's gone on without some cabinet minister knowing. That's a key uh, thing that I would uh, I would love to learn is can the representative sue the government of B.C. in Supreme Court without the attorney general of B.C. knowing about it? Was this just didn't did this not land on E.B.'s desk or who's, I mean, is this just kind of came out of the mill of routine contesting lawsuits or what? I know they got dozens of lawsuits on any given day. If he didn't know about this, maybe that's an explanation. But what else doesn't he know about in terms of what his ministry is doing? One of the things that jumps out at me on this one, and uh, I thought I learned about it reading your column last, and sometimes in this job when you cover it long enough, you get that kind of deja vu or sort of, or almost like a Groundhog Day thing where you see the same yeah. the same story repeating almost in a time loop, but it's so bizarre that the, the sides are switched. And like you said, the hypocrisy on it is kind of breathtaking because un- underlying all this type of story is the fact you're talking about uh, abused children in many cases, right? And, some, and sometimes in horrific cases that we've heard about and been documented in the past of Aboriginal kids who are in care who've suffered terrible abuse. And... If you go back to the 1990s, when the NDP were in power, there were some terrible cases like that. And I believe that was let, led to the formation of the Children's exactly. Watchdog sure. to begin yeah. with, right? Yeah. And I recall as well when the liberals took power and we continued to see tragic cases of, of kids in care um, being abused or in some cases losing their lives. The NDP were so self-righteous about it. And um, I remember Carol James standing up, uh, Mike Farnworth. You, you've detailed some of the other and, – and these are all now inner members of the John Horgan's cabinet yeah. who were fiercely – they just ripped the liberals for doing exactly what they're doing now and preventing this watchdog from, from doing her job. What What's the option now for the government? They can appeal this ruling, right? Do you they, think they will? They or a, what, they, is there, do you have any read on that if they will appeal? They've got a standard 30-day window to appeal any Supreme Court decision. Um to, if they if they appeal, then I guess it's firmly. Then it was policy. Then uh, the attorney general knew all about it, and they're consciously pursuing this as a as a policy decision, which just heightens, I think, the hypocrisy compared yeah. to what they stood for in the past. Yeah, you know what astounds me though, and I was thinking this when I was ranking cabinet ministers recently. We haven't had any major child welfare crises on the minister of children and families desk, Katrine Conroy. In two and a half years. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if that's a function of the fact that our current children's representative is not the former representative, Mary Ellen Terpel-Lafond, whose reports were just like nuclear missiles landing in the government ground and exploding with just, I mean, her reports were devastating. They'd be about entire yeah. children whose entire lives had been mishandled by the government system. Is it because we don't have that children's as, as strong a watchdog? Is it because that the current liberal opposition has no credibility on the child welfare file and can't bring questions up in the House? Is it because many of the unions and workers unions that were probably involved in cases and leaking information to the NDP opposition at the time are now dead silent because the NDP's in government? How is it that we spent two and a half years in a child welfare system that clearly isn't fixed? It's not like it was fixed overnight from when the liberals were in power and we don't hear any horror story cases. And then we have an example of this where the NDP are trying to quiet the watchdog. What is going on in the child welfare system is is my question. It's a, oh, those are interesting observations. I don't have a simple answer. Yeah. The one thing, I'm not sure, 
like we've got two different reps, Jennifer Charlesworth and Mary Ellen Turpel-Lafon previously. Uh, different management styles, obviously. Uh, Tripal Lafond let everybody in the world know that she was suing the government over this case. It was a, it was a fairly big story that, uh, that, that week that she went to court, had the argument and got a very quick verdict. Ted Hughes sat beside her in the courtroom. You know, the, yep. he's the pillar of kind of the establishment of our system that we have now. And it, it was a big deal. This one, uh, Charlesworth didn't say boo about this. I'd, everybody was blindsided by not only the verdict, by the fact that she'd sued the government was a big deal. We didn't hear anything about that. And just to get like the specific thing she's in, she's inquiring into that the government tried to block her from looking at, she wants to look at how children who were killed or critically injured, how they were represented or how they were heard in family court proceedings that may have been proximate to the trauma. Like they're in the middle of some, some, many of them. She doesn't say how many, but she said numerous. There's numerous cases where kids get killed, die, or critically injured, and they're in the middle, either nearing or they're in the middle of some family court proceedings. So how, how were their interests represented and heard in court? Mm. And to do that, she needs, you know, certain records from the government, from from family law practice, I guess, which uh, which looks to be the sticking point. That's why the government objected. But to me, that sounds like a pretty compelling kind of topic. That might be very interesting. Yeah, and you know, wonder why the, why the and, government wouldn't want her to see those records. And uh, what can the liberal have the liberals said anything about this, or can they say anything given their own? I have you know, a poor record on it. Yeah, I haven't heard word one. Yeah, they haven't said they haven't piped up at all. That's so. the ultimate. I think that's why we're in a really kind of dangerous situation on the child welfare file right now because we don't have an opposition that can raise questions in the house about the file. They have such a poor track record. The yeah. the liberals in government on child welfare that it it seems impossible you could have them stand up now and criticize the NDP for doing anything when they. Were involved in so many horrific cases and redesigns of the system that were that ultimately failed, and I, I and I don't think that's good for the ministry to have no real oversight. You have a children's watchdog who's got a different style than the previous one, and you've got an opposition who can't raise questions. And you guys got dead silence for for the better part of the first half of the mandate. Well, if the pattern continues. Mike, that you outlined, where the you know the they're just trading places. The the liberals just just get up and recite all the questions, the indignant questions that the NDP <laughs> was asking Mary Pollock nine years ago. When are you going to apologize to the rep for daring to question and contest her independence, which is crucial and vital, etc., etc., etc. And the money wasted. You remember how the the NDP were saying that any court challenge against the representative was money wasted that could be in the hands of children who need it. Yeah. And that's that's no longer in consideration of the NDP now that they're in government yeah. and control the army of lawyers. So it's a, a couple of fascinating columns there, Les. I have a feeling that uh, some ministers are going to be under the hot seat when the legislature comes back to explain yeah. why they're doing this to the children's rep. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, the other issue, just as we wrap up the show here, that has been going on in various forms across the province, you have a strike at the University of Northern BC involving the faculty, you have ongoing job action in Metro Vancouver involving bus drivers and C-Bus system, you have a what, entering its third week 
uh, strike by QP uh, support workers in the education system in the Saanich School District, which has kept kids out of class for three weeks now. Uh, there is labor pressure on all sides of the John Horgan government uh, to questions about whether the government should be intervening in any of these. What is is this a product of its bargaining mandate? The two, two and two percent wage increase over three year, very tight mandate that it is refusing to move on. Uh, Smitty, what's your read on on this? Are there, are there ones more dangerous than than others for the Horgan government? Do you think that any of them jump out? I get a feeling that Horgan is under pressure here to intervene in some of these disputes especially the Saanich school strike, which, as you mentioned, is now dragged on into week three. Imagine being a parent in that school district and your kid's school has been shut down for three weeks. I, I talked to a mom there who has a daughter in grade 12 and apparently a very bright kid looking forward to going to university and now very concerned and worried about her university application status when she's been out of classes for three weeks. So the mom has now is now pulling her daughter out of school in Saanich and transferring her daughter into another high school in Victoria so the kid can go to school. And she told me that she's not alone, that she's been contacted by other parents who are contemplating doing the same thing. That's pretty brutal. And this is a dispute that I think has kind of flown under the radar a little bit because maybe a lot of the media have looked at it as, I mean, certainly the Times Colonist has done a good job on it less for, as a local story, but for other press who have been sort of looking and go, well, this is kind of suburban Victoria, we're not paying a very close attention to it. I think it deserves a little bit more attention because that's a lot of, that's thousands of kids out of class and really disrupting a lot of people's uh, lives there. And I think there's pressure on uh, Horgan to do something about it. The two sides seem to be very far apart. This is a strike by support workers represented by QP. The teachers are respecting their picket lines, and that's why the, the two sides are, uh, why the schools are shut down. But they seem to be very far apart. The The school district there are playing real hardball. If you go on the school district website, they've actually posted a very detailed offer that they've put on the table for the union, which is kind of unusual. So I think it's a bit of an indication of uh, if something like that spreads, especially into maybe a wider school dispute with the BC Teachers Federation, and they're not talking, they're miles apart. A mediator just brought out a, a report just slamming the BCTF largely and saying that there's no chance for a deal here. So I think there's there's pressure on the Horgan government here to do something about it. What did, what did you make of it, Les? And I, I was particularly struck by John Horgan's comments. He got asked last week about this, and he said, I think that the offer on the table from the Saanich School District is fair. I think if it was put to a vote by members of QP, not the leadership of QP, but members of QP, that it would pass. And I kind of went, whoa, I mean, that's a that's something for the premier to say. I, did you you got any sense of, of what's I'm going on there? I'm thinking, given everything you've said, plus the fact that teachers are coming up to a, a missing paycheck uh, pretty soon. Yeah. Three weeks without work. I think... Uh, I don't. I wouldn't put an exact date on it, but there's another few days of the legislative sitting. I can see somebody standing up and introducing back to work legislation. Yeah. I mean, there's a mandatory next week. cooling off period. They're going to have to get into this. Three th um, three weeks out of a grade eleven, grade twelve students. Yeah education career at this point that's getting to the point of an emergency one, one of the guards here at the legislature is uh has a, a two kids in the school system and she has come up to me a couple times going what's going on what's going on she's just pulling her hair out sure. with her kids out of class and i'm like well you know well, the, the pressure's on vaughn unearthed a very interesting old cabinet rule that allows the cabinet to effectively make an order that would let 
the union members vote on an offer on the table outside of the executive of that union having to call for the vote. So you could basically chop the head off the union and cabinet could say, we direct yeah. the members to vote on the package as it sits on the table right now, which would be quite a blow to CUPE, the CUPE local there. And I have a feeling there would be a lot of pushback in organized labor for the government to come in and knock the executives out of a, of a bargaining situation. But it is, it is one option the government yeah. could do before it goes yeah. into back to work. The other question in Metro Vancouver is if this, strike continues to escalate there into wider bus disruptions or even, I mean, that that's a huge problem for the Horgan government. If the Metro Vancouver transit system continues to grind down, uh, you're going to have some very angry urban voters that the NDP uh, are relying on to keep them in power upset there. You sort of, you get the impression like a, a, a an NDP government comes in two years, uh, NDP government is, you know, very obviously closely aligned with the labor movement. They're all simpatico with one another, and public sector unions hold, you know, basically run the show now compared to private sector unions. They gave them two years to get their act together and see how things are going. And then I think they get to this point in a mandate where public sector unions start to think, okay, you know, we've been supporting you through thick and thin. It's our turn. We're going to step up, and we're serious. We need this stuff. And the government is, like any government, uh, you know, they're strapped. They I don't think have the, uh, the money to fulfill all the expectations. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there's a lot of these unions are thinking like, this is our government in power now, and it's kind of payback time. We had 16 years of liberal yeah. rule, and now it's like our time, you know. And even if you look at the BCTF uh Twitter feed, for example, they've been putting up old videos of John Horgan uh, speaking at some of their rallies when the liberals were in power and the teachers were on strike and Horgan's up there going, we got your back, brothers and sisters, you know, and just clearly backing up the union. And now they're and now they're furious. But if you talk on background to people in government about the BCTF's demands, they they're just saying, like, look, these demands are out of out of whack. We, we can't afford what they're what they're demanding. Um so I think that's going to be a real tough one. On the transit, I think you're right, Rob, about – I think the transit one's very dangerous because if it starts to spread into the bus system, uh, especially if it starts hurting commuters in some of these very closely contested ridings in suburban Vancouver, then you got – the NDP's got a problem because there are a bunch of seats they won. Two that jump out at me right now are like two the two seats in Maple Ridge that they took from the Liberals last time. And if you start – you know, if people get really angry about their bus service not working there, that's a problem. Another critical riding to watch is North Vancouver Lonsdale, Bowen Ma, who won that seat for the NDP after 21 years, the previous Liberal. And they've been taking a disproportionate share of the damage from this job action because the C bus has been shut down and the C bus terminal is right in that riding. So the Liberals are kind of loving this. And they're out there calling on Horgan, do something about it. You've got to solve this. Secretly, they want him to do nothing about it, and they don't want him to solve it. They want it to get worse because they think that, they, you know, it might help them take back some of these seats. Yeah. So we'll see. One thing with it, when there's a liberal government in power, there's uh, the labor movement and the government, just they're professional adversaries. So you hate us, we hate you. You know, it's just business. <laughs> and this one, they're all friends. They all go to the same conventions. You know, they're all on the same page in terms of their outlook and their philosophies. And it, it actually, you'd think that would smooth things over, but we've gotten to the point now where the it's turn, it could turn into a kind of a fairly serious family yeah, argument. I, I, my re, I don't, don't think Horgan's going to have a lot of patience for it, though. I think that Horgan senses the danger here, that if this if these disputes 
conflate and get worse and drag on and it really starts to hurt the public, I think he realizes that his whole grip on power is potentially threatened. So I think Horgan's pragmatic enough that you might see him getting getting tough with these unions. Well, it, it helps that the very first NDP budget uh, coming into power dumped a ton of money into the education system and the BCTF and all the education players said, fantastic, this is great. Finally, we've got the money for the classroom conditions we need. And now, yeah. a year and a half later, the TF has tried to make it sound like classrooms it's are falling enough. apart. <laughs> we don't have enough money. And I think the Horgan government kind of can ride on that. You know, we put billions of dollars into the system. What do you right. mean it's not enough? And the public will... They well, that, was in the, that was in the mediator's report, too, saying that the union's demanding that you, you vastly increase education spending. And the mediator wrote, look, this is a government has to balance all these other spending demands on health care, uh, health care, social services, housing. And, you know, you can't it's not the union's position to say you have to dump billions and billions of dollars more into the education system in order to satisfy our contract demands. So the mediator is still there. The mediator is not booked out of the dispute. Then there is a chance that things can progress can start to be made again. But they do seem a long, far away part. Yeah, it'll be an interesting file to watch. Les, uh, thanks for coming on the show. Where do where can people keep in touch uh, with you? You're on Twitter. Your columns are in the TC. Tell people Lane Les Twitter and the TimesColonist.com. Great, well, and on your doorstep most mornings. <laughs> I subscribe. Yeah, no, it's yeah. good. It's, yeah. Thanks. Hey, for, it's nice to talk to you guys. Thanks for coming in, Smitty. Uh, good to talk to you as well. We're going to be back next week. Follow us. Uh, subscribe to the podcast so you get the latest edition in your uh, inbox on uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher. We will be back next week to talk to you then.